0: I mentioned this in the first service, but I love that line. The right, the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Man, I wish I could write like that. If you take your Bibles. And open them. First John, chapter four. The title of today's message is love one another. And we're calling it part two. Some of you may recall that we several weeks ago had a message that was titled love one another as well. We'll call that one now part one that was taken from chapter three verses 11 through 18. Now, I've mentioned this before several times, but perhaps one could misconstrue a letter such as 1st John as being too harsh. Now that's not to say that any portion of this inspired letter is of lesser importance although maybe some feel its weight heavier than other portions of scripture there's no debating have we as we've discussed throughout that John speaks in very bold and direct Ways at times. Challenges that he puts forth. That could potentially cause an unbeliever to fear the consequences of a contradiction of faith. Remember that was one of the titles of one of our messages. I might add. That's not a bad thing either. John would not have desired for imposters to sit within the churches of Asia Minor, nor do I. The 18th century Puritan John Newton once said, my grand point in preaching is to break the hard heart and to heal the broken one. I love that. And that quote, I believe, in many respects, clearly reflects John's heart in this letter, too, as well. Is this letter full of tough and challenging words? You better believe it. Although, those words are intended to challenge the hard hearts in hopes That God might perhaps grant them repentance leading to faith in Christ alone. That would be a good result. Nevertheless, in perfect harmony, this letter is just as filled with comforting, encouraging, and assuring words for born-again believers in Christ. Remember its primary intent. We looked at from chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. He desired to assure them and encourage them and comfort them. What's more, this letter serves repeatedly to spur us on towards obedience and practicing righteousness and, of course, love. In chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, our passage this morning... Once again, John returns to this topic of love. Within our part one message, we asked the question, how do we practice biblical love? We answered that with three certainties. Number one, that love is vertical. Number two, that love is distinctive. And then number three, that love is action. Within that passage, some of you might recall, we identified a theme that the children of God practice biblical love. This is the same theme that we'll see in this passage here this morning, although we're going to examine it from a different perspective. We might say a more foundational or fundamental standpoint. Last time we looked at the how. We practice biblical love. This morning, we'll look at the why do we practice biblical love. You know, it's one thing to understand the how-tos in life, be that as it may. It's usually not the how-tos that enable us to persevere in life. It's the why behind it all, that is the fuel for our fire. It's the why that provides better conviction for rearing children in difficult times. It's the why that helps us to pursue career goals, perhaps when all momentum seems stymied. It's the why that empowers a husband and wife on shaky ground to push forward for reconciliation. It's the why which will inevitably, I believe wholeheartedly, embolden us to practice more love of one another. That said, Three foundations in this text should serve to provide the answers to the question why we practice biblical love. Would you stand with me, please? As we read our passage here this morning. This is the word of God. First John, chapter four, verses seven through twelve. Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated. Our first foundation is number one, his nature. and We'll see this in verses seven and eight. Repetition equals emphasis when it comes to Bible interpretation. With that said, I want us to examine some context first before verses 7 and 8. John actually now, for the third time, shines a light of emphasis on this topic of love. In chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, he discussed the love of the brethren as a characteristic of a true believer. And then as we mentioned in the introduction, in chapter 3, verses 11 and 18, love is a distinguishing element that separates us from the world. And then our passage this morning, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, a third time, he returns to this idea of, more specifically, the love of one another. So throughout the letter, one cannot question the priority of the biblical command to love one another. Moreover, because the Spirit abides in us as believers, we cannot help but practice this righteousness of loving one another. It's this biblical ethic which serves as a testimony to the fact of indeed we being children of God. What's more, we know what it looks like from chapter 3, verses 11 and 18. As Abel was concerned with faith and righteousness in his sacrifice, Cain was more concerned with Abel. It's that vertical certainty that we discussed that emboldens us to drive forward in practicing love of one another. Additionally, we know when practicing biblical love, the world will inevitably hate us. We practice love with truth, that truth in and of itself, is often a sword of division to the guilty conscience of the world. Hence, often, at times, their hatred of us and what that passage articulated. And then, of course, biblical love, in and of itself, that word, agape, is a selfless love, a self-sacrificial love, one that's concerned with action, as we saw in that passage in chapter 3, contextually. Not just words. All that to say, even with those contextual truths understood, why do we at times still miss the mark? Why do we fall short when it comes to loving one another? We might say, and I'll phrase it this way, ethics should never be devoid of theology. The ethics is the how, and the theology behind it all is the why. John's already communicated the ethics. In our passage here this morning, he'll focus more on the why. With that said, let us never lose sight of the how. It's a critical piece of the puzzle when it comes to loving one another. We've been commanded to love one another. We should be concerned with what that looked like. What that looks like. How it operates in our lives. Nevertheless, my friends, when we can continually cling to the theology behind it all, the why, which is the fuel for our fire, we will inevitably practice more righteousness. In this case, loving of one another. With that context in place, look with me again at verse 7. John states, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Two key grammatical points I want us to look at here. There's a sense on the front half of this verse in which our command to love one another is written in the original language with a hopeful sense. Now that's not to say that we could possibly practice sin. Those in whom the Spirit abides will never practice sin. However, what about this nasty flesh that we all wrestle with? We still fall short. We fail. Here's the key. In contrast to that hopeful sense, the grammatical sense of love is from God and born of God was not written in the hopeful sense. The mood of the verb is one that creates and communicates a reality. It's certain. It's who and what God is. For he is love. And perfect biblical love flows forth from him. It's his nature. What's more, everyone who is born of God receives this nature. Now be it not in a perfect sense, we understand our limitations, this side of glorification. But here, the voice of this verb is in a passive voice. The subject, everyone who loves receives the action of being born again. So question, how is that helpful? Considering these certainties of being born of God. God is love compared to our hopeful sense of where we at times fall short. It relates, beloved, to our weaknesses. Weaknesses which in turn often cause us to cling and rest in his strength his certain nature whether before salvation or after scripture repeatedly speaks of our inabilities our weaknesses our failures yet it also Demonstrates his perfect, purposeful and sovereign ability to accomplish all that he's decreed. To overcome our inabilities because of his love for us. After salvation, considering the context of loving one another, although we fall short I want you to take comfort. Take courage. As we read even before the the song with the Zolman ladies. Take encouragement. In his perfect nature of love, he overcomes our flesh. He equips us to practice what he commands. That's good news in our frailties. In our weaknesses. And then in verse 8 you'll see he once again. Continues to uphold the nature of God. With the phrase for God is love. You can see that in the end of verse 8. He speaks to that briefly. After addressing the lack of love. Being evidence of a non-believer. Let me explain the power behind his nature in this way. Last week we mentioned a God-centered theology in matters of discernment. We contrasted that with a man-centered approach to theology and practice. This provides us with a perfect illustration. If our focus is always on the command or the how we'll fulfill it, inevitably, unfortunately, In our flesh, we become too focused on our strength to accomplish the task. Does this mean that we don't have a responsibility for obedience? Of course not. You've heard us speak of this multiple times. That would be a contradiction of Scripture to say anything to the contrary. We should be concerned with what it looks like and how that operates. Nevertheless, we cannot allow this to distract us from our primary focus. A focus which should be ultimately concerned with Christ, his glory, his strength, his nature, which is certain, true, and real. I promise you, it's this type of theological perspective Which will drive our ethical application like no other. A God-centered theology. A God-centered why? As opposed to a man-centered. Now, before we move to our second foundation, I want to offer one other point of application. In chapter 1, verse 5, John states that God is light. Light. In defining that, we express the fact that this pertains to everything of his character and nature is true and pure. Here, of course, we're unpacking the fact that God is love. Here's the point. All of God's character is true and pure. What's more, it flows forth out of love. Even his justice and his holiness. Contrary to some of the seeker-sensitive, more watered-down approaches to ministry when, when some, someone speaks of God as love. Even in his justice. Even in his holiness. Everything is true and pure and loving in him. That said... Because you, dear brother and sister in Christ, because you have received His nature, albeit in a somewhat limited sense, once again, this side of glorification, can we strive to practice and reflect all aspects of our character in love? For example... Truth in love. How many of us at times become too focused on being like a truth bomb? I've been there. Truth needs to be mixed with love. That is His nature. Justice in love. For those of us parents and grandparents alike, and some of you younger people who hopefully one day experience. What about discipline in love? This is His nature. Even in His discipline of us, those in whom He loves, He disciplines. As believers, this is one aspect of why we practice biblical love to be a reflection and a model of all he is in character and in nature. So, his nature is certainly a powerful motivator, a why for us when it concerns biblical love. His example is second to none. And that's our second foundation His example we'll look at in verses 9 and 10. Look with me at verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In our message from chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. And that certainty of love is action. We began to touch on his example from how-to, from a how-to perspective. We looked at the motivation that comes from Christ laying down his life for us. Christ's death certainly serves as a force for us to practice the how we practice biblical love. In chapter 3, verse 17, we saw that. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? One way we practice the how of biblical love, as we looked at and just read again, is by giving something of value to someone in need. We do so not just with our words, but with actions. Now, within this passage, though, John adds to the substance of Christ's example, ultimately providing an even greater encouragement for us on why we practice biblical love. In chapter 3, verse 1, John reminded the churches of how great a love The Father has bestowed on you. Here in chapter 4 verse 9. He reminds them by way of an unmatched. One of a kind. Divine explanation. Now. In some respects all illustrations at times fall short. Of communicating the substance of everything. That is involved. That said, let me give a shot to communicate chapter 4, verse 9, with a simple illustration. All the while, understanding that to communicate everything that is meant in the Father sending His Son is difficult to do from an illustrative perspective. That said, God's love for His people was clearly revealed by way of him sending his only begotten son into the world. Imagine being in possession of a one of a kind, never before nor ever will be equaled piece of human history. And yet, choosing To share its unmatched beauty and unmatched value with many. Not to mention doing so with individuals that do not appreciate its value. Nor desired anything of its beauty. Be that as it may. You gave it up because of your desire for them to know it and to be changed by it. Once again, I don't claim to connect all of what's demonstrated and meant by the father sending his son. Nevertheless, what's important for us to see here is the unique And one and only sense of the Son. Even the word begotten in many respects does not communicate the original in a helpful sense. The idea is that Christ is the one unique and only one of a kind. He was not birthed or created by the Father, as many cults affirm. He was and is and forever will be the co equal, co eternal, second person of the triune Godhead. Wow. And yet, God the Father chose to send him that we might live through him. Now that said, what does it mean to live through him? We see one answer in John's Gospel, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus' high priestly prayer, prayer, John seventeen three reads, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ in whom you have sent. Friends, to live is to know Christ. Amen. What's more, why is this knowledge of the gifts so rewarding? Why does it express the greatest of God's love for his people? Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. We've referenced it several times, even throughout this letter. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Do you see how glorious this example of God's love is for you? You. Second person pronoun, not third person. Specific. You, dear brother. You, dear sister. You, beloved. God thought of you when he sent his son. He determined to send his unique one and only son to save you and to secure you for all eternity with him. Amen. Hallelujah. That's an example for why we should practice biblical love. Not to mention that's an example for why we should do so even with those who don't want to receive our Love is that not what Christ did on your behalf what's more not only does John describe the father's actions of sending his son he further describes his perfect purpose and price behind his example look with me at verse 10 In this is love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the pinnacle of love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us. Friends really, there is no escaping with any honest evaluation of Scripture, the doctrine of the total depravity of man and the sovereign grace of God. We've mentioned this before. John chapter 15, verse 16 reads, You did not choose me, But I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And just a side note quickly as well. One that's important regarding our desire to not boast in anything concerning this pinnacle of love that he chose you. That choice had nothing to do with him looking down the corridor of time and seeing that you would believe. Second Timothy chapter one, verse nine reads. Who has saved us. And called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works. But according to his own purpose and Grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus before all eternity. No ground for boasting. For any of us. So. How does this divine purpose. And love for us before time began bolster our commitment to bear fruit, a responsibility to do so, to love one another. What's more, how does this proper perspective of theology, the why behind it all, serve as a lightning bolt in our ethical application, the how-tos? Simply stated, If it not for the grace of God, we would not even be having this conversation. We'd still be slaves to sin. We'd still be serving the God of this world. But God, who is rich in mercy, chose you. And this brings us back to our... God-centered theology and practice of life. It's in this application of biblical truth where we find that lightning bolt. Two words. Humility and grace. We fall upon our face and say, nothing in me was worthy of your love and yet I was nothing but a hell-bound sinner running a race that I desired. But in your great love, you changed me. It's in a theology such as this, a why such as this, where we cannot help but practice more humility, practice more grace, Practice more loving of one another. So, I mentioned the price of his example as well. What about that? Thinking back to our illustration, all of the beauty and the value of the unique, one and only Son, and yet. He was not only given away with a purpose, but he was given away with a price. A price not for the beautiful, but for the vilest of people. Scripture proclaims, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And yet because of that sacrifice he became the propitiation for our sins amen a sacrifice had to be made an actual atonement and satisfaction had to be accomplished Jesus said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we saw this on display in the perfect advocate. All of this understood. Why do we practice biblical love? How can we not? When considering his purpose for you. A perfect. and actual redemption. He accomplished on the cross. On your behalf. Not to mention. An incredible price. That he paid. On the cross. On your behalf. Paul described it as such in Romans chapter 3. Verses 24 and 25, when he said, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. When we think of his example, our why behind biblical love will only increase. Remember John's overall purpose once again in writing. He wrote to encourage and assure us and to give us confidence in his nature, in his example. It's this specific example of love with purpose and price versus a general or this actual example of love versus a potential that lends us to a greater appreciation of the why we practice biblical love so We've looked at his nature. We've looked at his example. And the third, why? We're reminded of one of Christ's primary missions. And that's number three. His witness. His witness. Verse 11 reads, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Like a soldier. A duty bound and morally obligated. To defend his country. Such is on a far grander scale. The desire of a believer. The pledge of a believer. The obligation of a believer. To love one another. For the soldier, perhaps he looks to his family, those whom he loves, his superior as the why behind his obligation. As for us, this charge to love one another. Christ is always at the core of our gaze. The verse states. If God so loved us. you know as I was preparing for this message <laughs> it was interesting how God just in the Holy Spirit and his illumination after so much time at near the end shined a light on this one little word so <laughs> I, I passed and glossed over it so many times in preparing think of the difference there God loves you. God so loves you, those of you that are in Christ. There's an extra emphasis placed on his love for you. Specific, remember, we see this throughout. Not a potential mass of humanity, but his people, his sheep. You know him. He knows you. And you follow him. It's personal. It's perfect. It's effectual. It's actual. He so loved you, dear brother and sister in Christ. And that said, how can we not be indebted to him? That's the sense of that word, ought to love one another. We're indebted to him. And I might add, indebted in a good way. Once slaves to sin, now slaves to righteousness. It's our pleasure to be indebted to the Savior. What's more, in verse 12, he crosses the T and dots the I. If you will, when it comes to this third foundation, look again at verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. A couple things to address here as we draw to a close. In John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, he uses the exact same words when he says, no one has seen God at any time. In that gospel, in chapter 20, verse 31, we see the theme of the gospel as a whole. That verse, chapter 20, verse 31 reads, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, penned that verse as a theme for the gospel as a whole. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Continuing in that gospel, Chapter 17, verse 22 through 23, as we look to connect this dot to this third foundation of his witness. We read, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in you so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Theologians use a word referred to as Johannan, and that word just, in essence, expresses all of John's writings, whether it be Revelation, his epistle, his gospel? Do you see the overall Johannine connection from his gospel to this letter to verse 12 in his witness and what we just read? God in his divine plan is using our love for one another as a demonstration of biblical love, as a witness Although, no one can experience the literal Christ in this church age. They can experience his love through the church. What's more, because God abides in us, he's perfecting that love. He's perfecting it and using it as a witness to the world. I don't know about you, but that's a why like no other. Jesus Christ came. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Apart from his purpose to glorify the Father, there was no greater purpose That he had in coming was to seek and to save not just the lost, but you. As for us, would that serve as another foundation to our obligation, our commitment to love one another? An obligation that desires with all of our hearts to be a reflection of his witness by way of our love for the brethren. That's a why. Especially as we think of so many and whom are apart from this grace as we speak. So. To review and I'm done why do we practice biblical love it's because of his nature and we those of us that are in Christ have been given this nature look to him gaze upon him God-centered theology his strength his nature And we will inevitably practice more loving of one another and then his example. (laughs) This specific purpose and price that he paid on behalf of you. And then finally his witness. To be a light to a world in need. All of us that are in Christ desire this. Christ is calling us to love one another as a means in that. Of course, he's also calling us to proclaim the gospel. To go forth and make disciples as another means in reaching the lost. But he's also using our love for one another. This is what scripture clearly communicates. As a light, a beacon of hope to a a world in need. Bow with me in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you again for speaking to us through your word. You say, Lord, that it will go forth and not return void. For the majority of us here in this room, Lord, we pray and ask that it would be an aroma of life unto life. That it would discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And that it would cause us to reflect upon the why behind it all. You are the author and finisher of our faith. You have indwelt us in the Holy Spirit. You have given us power to perform in your strength what you've commanded us to do. Lord for us here at Miriam Christian Chapel and even for sound strong biblical orthodox churches around the world would you cause us all to be a light and a city on a hill loving one another witnessing to your majesty and glory in the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we pray amen